In today's episode, my friend Wayne Jett and I discuss money, history, economics, and his book, The Fruits of Graph, Great Depressions Then and Now. We had fun. We enjoyed it. and hope you do as well. Thank you for listening. Welcome to the Banking with Life podcast. I'm your host, James Nethery, and I'm as excited as I can be to have the guest Wayne Jett on today. And I'm excited that you have the opportunity to um, discover who this man is, his background and his work. And we're we're uh, going to ultimately get to his book, The Fruits of Graph. So welcome, Wayne Jett. I appreciate you coming on and podcasting with me. Thanks a lot, James. I'm delighted to have the invitation and look forward to our discussion. Perfect. Now, um, Wayne, as I kind of said earlier, you know, and we haven't had a lot of discussions before now, maybe a phone call and a couple of emails when I purchased your book. Uh, and I purchased your book, The Fruits of Graph, about a year and a half ago. And I discovered you and even was exposed to your book on Sarah Westfall's uh, podcast. And you, there's a lot of content out on the internet where you have interviewed with a multiple of podcasters and, the, and I encourage the listeners to search for Wayne Jett and, and listen to him and his interviews. Um, what I'd like to do today, Wayne, is to, to get to your background. I want the listeners to know who you are, your background, and, and because constant, argued before the Supreme Court as an attorney. That's impressive. Um, and then moving into the financial world, discovering kind of what's going on, and then you know the genesis of your work that that really produced this book, and then um, what you've done and what you're currently doing. So that's kind of what I would like for you to to go through, if you don't mind. Well, thanks. I'll be happy to do that. Uh, I, I will just try to be as brief as possible about my background. But I I grew up in a uh, family. My uh, father was a, a farmer. He um, was basically broke in the Great Depression. Uh, he became a sharecropper. Um, married my mother, who was uh, uh, maybe half his age, but uh, basically he was born in 1900, so you can see how old he was during the 30s. And um, uh, it's a very great struggle, and uh, travel around the country trying to find a job of any kind to bring in any kind of money. Um, uh, that little town we moved into when I was, uh, oh, probably uh, eight or nine years old, we moved in from the farm because we got foreclosed on uh, because, uh, you know, the, I'm sure uh, the prices for cattle and beef and so forth, uh, my dad was raising a few cows. They got taken by the bank. Uh, I didn't know about this at that time as to why we moved, but we moved into town. And uh, I wound up having a, uh, I, I went to the same schools in uh, my little town for uh, my entire uh, elementary and high school education. And uh, by the time I got through those terrific teachers I had, um, all the way from first uh, through the 12th, uh, I was an honor student uh, in both English, but I was a, uh, an engineering uh, student. And uh, not only that, but the University of Oklahoma, uh, where I attended, just absolutely, I cannot believe how well I was taken care of while I was there. Um, in my sophomore year, basically after selling Cokes and 
uh, in the football stand stadium and uh, and uh, delivering mail around campus in my first uh, freshman year, uh, first semester, and then uh, working zoology uh, lab and that sort of thing. Uh, I got a job uh, due to the influence of my counselor in engineering. Uh, he uh, got me a job uh, at the University Research Institute, and uh, I became, uh, I was trained and, and uh, got uh, good pay for writing uh, proposals. I was tech, became a technical writer for them. Uh, from there, I was hired on to one of the uh, projects that uh, an engineering professor got uh, doing uh, classified research for the Defense Department. That was after a couple of years, so uh, I, I felt I'd uh, gotten quite a bit of experience as a technical writer, and they hired me basically to do writing and research of that kind. I wound up writing the report for that, and then I got hired uh, by the Continuing Education Center, uh, a man that uh, become acquainted with back in high school because he had been our football coach for one year before he got reactivated in the military. Uh, he had played o OU football, and uh, so I could get, you know, the, it's so easy to get into the weeds here with all, so many details, but um, uh, he hired me away from that uh, after that research project was done uh, to work in his office of special projects uh, at the Continuing Education Center, and uh, he was a very innovative fellow. He had developed an advanced program in governmental studies, a Master of Arts degree, for people already working, it became a sensation in the country. And I was his number two guy, uh, basically administratively. We went back to Washington together to uh, try to uh, find people to do contractual work with and things of that sort. That was in 1963 or so, and um, or 64, actually. But in any event, uh, uh, he was such a, uh, a hit with that uh, program that he had developed. He was hired away from the university, and uh, uh, as his assistant, I then became his director as soon as I got my degree in engineering, which is 19, 1965, and I finished my uh, a law degree in 60, January 67. And so I was director of an office that had, he had already established a, uh, an office in Washington, D.C., uh, the first one for any university, I, I believe. And uh, so all of that, uh, uh, really, uh, it was a tremendous experience. I had some of the most interesting work I ever did in my life uh, while I was still at the university. Uh, that Office of Advanced Studies uh, that I was director of, um, and I, I hired staff in, in Europe. We had classes taught there as well as at the uh, Strategic Air Command headquarters. Uh, we had NASA students. Uh, we had uh, all sorts of bright people, including uh, Director of Personnel at NASA, Art Sanderson at the time, from Marshall Space Flight Center, was one of my students, one of my friends. I mean, I wasn't a teacher in that program. I was the administrator. But uh, it was a tremendously interesting uh, time in my life. Uh, I uh, traveled to Europe, to, to uh, Britain, and so forth, and looking at uh, visiting military bases and uh, getting acquainted with people. Um, went to a number of universities uh, around the Southwest, organizing a 
Alliance for Latin America uh, with a pr professor there at the university that uh, specialized in that area. Uh, so I, I really had a very broad experience. I just can't believe how well they took care of me. And all of that is uh, largely at the time uh, uh, I was a student as well as uh, uh, then a couple of years thereafter. Then I decided I, the last uh, thing I wrote or did for the university in my position, other than being administrator of that advanced program, was I, I wrote a uh, proposal uh, the university needed submitted uh, to get the first postal research institute. And it got a couple of million dollars, which was big money in those days. Uh, it uh, bought a lot of things. And uh, as soon as I did that, um, I basically, I resigned from my position there because I needed to start practicing law. And uh, the only, uh, I actually wanted to practice in Oklahoma, but I couldn't find a job. <laughs> and so I, I took a position uh, that turned out to be uh, uh, very worthwhile in Los Angeles. Uh, and um, uh, for a, a small firm that had a tremendous practice in the field I was interested in, labor law. And so I, I joined that firm and I was with them for a couple of years. When of all things, I was uh, uh, asked if I would separate from the firm and become the primary counsel uh, for um, a set of institutional or sized uh, employee benefit trusts, a pension, a large pension plan, uh, a large health care plan, a large uh, training program for apprentices in the craft of operating engineers. Uh, the man who hired me to do that in large part uh, was the head of the union, even though I had been uh, with a management law firm. And um, uh, it happened, uh, I learned later, that his background was he had grown up in the Bakersfield area uh, around a lot of people who had had to immigrate there from Oklahoma yep. in uh, the Depression. And he had such respect for the people he had grown up with that he thought I might be another honest one. And uh, by and large, uh, it... Uh, developed into a long-term relationship, although unfortunately uh, he retired uh, just a few years after that. But my relationship with those uh, employee benefit trust funds uh, lasted for something like 28 years, uh, thereabouts. And um, uh, it was a tremendous opportunity uh, to influenced the development of law relating to the enforcement of employee benefits. Um, there was no law in the federal courts at that time, even though it was a federal law that uh, authorized the, the plans in the first place. And largely my firm uh, did the litigation in the U.S. Court of Appeals for the Ninth Circuit that largely established the case law in the country for how those contracts, those labor agreements were to be enforced so that the employee benefits could be uh, adequately secured because uh, they were a lot of money uh, paid by employers and some employers uh, cut corners and didn't pay properly. And it, uh, it had to be enforced uh, and uh, I think we did a good job of that. That's how largely I got into the Supreme Court, but 
unfortunately, uh, the bad part of that story is that the uh, Congress uh, double-crossed the employers uh, in 1974. Uh, the great thing about the labor laws at that point had been uh, to say to labor and the employers, you make your agreement and your agreement will be enforced. Uh, the government will not be superimposing our own requirements on you. Uh, you make your agreement and we'll live with it. Well, in 74, they reneged on that. And uh, uh, basically in order to, I think, centralize more government power as our governments tend to do, uh, they uh, passed a law that says, well, well, we're going to guarantee, supposedly we're going to insure pensions. And uh, therefore, instead of just letting the employer agree to pay a certain amount of money in and the pension plan then manage the funds and invest it in such a way as to provide the best pension it can, we're going to say that the employer has to underwrite whatever the pension eventually costs. Uh, over and above the cents per hour or the dollars per hour that they pay in on each employee that works for them. Well, that, uh, that entirely uh, corrupted the whole legal system and contractual system that, that those pension plans were based on. Uh, and uh, it really caused a, a great uh, unsettlement of the tremendous growth and benefits that those uh, programs had done by putting the employers in the position of uh, being unsure how much they might eventually have to pay uh, when they're construction projects and they, they live contract to contract. Uh, but uh, yet uh, what it amounted to is uh, uh, on that, I'll, I'll try to wind that discussion up, but it it's, uh, uh, becomes directly involved, and that was one of the two cases that I took to the Supreme Court, the U.S. Supreme Court. Uh, it was called the Connolly versus Pension Benefit Guarantee Corporation. Uh, that was just a boondoggle that basically uh, charged money to all of the good trust funds around the country, the, well, the ones that were well run, took the money and put it into a pot and went back and paid the benefits that had been stolen from the ones back in the uh, New York uh, East Coast area. Uh, which was uh, the area that uh, the author of that bill, Jacob Javits in the Senate, uh, came from. And uh, it knew, I knew it was going to be a boondoggle that would blow up all the trusts and so forth, and that's exactly what it's done. The Pension Benefit Guarantee Corporation has gone bankrupt, uh, and yet it also unsettled all of the trust funds around the country, and made the employers want to get out of it, uh, there was one fund, uh, one, one small employer down in San Diego who actually uh, he got, had a lawyer that volunteered to represent him in the case as an intervener. And basically that was a guy who with his family had uh, developed just a small sand and gravel company. And uh, because of this law, even though he had paid all of his uh, contractual contributions, he... Uh, uh, was liable for over a million dollars on this pension benefit guarantee corporation on something he had never agreed to pay. Now, a million, million to a million and a half dollars for that guy was his entire net worth that he had developed over uh, in, in his little company of 10 or 12 employees. 
doing small construction projects, uh, that wiped out thousands of small employers like that across the country just because of the power of the federal government to step in and undo and break the, the contracts that private individuals had made. Uh, I took the case to the Supreme Court on the basis that it was a violation of the taking clause. It was a passage of a law taking uh, private property money from one private person and giving it to another a private pension plan. Uh, and uh, that's uh, most clearly a violation of the Fifth Amendment, the taking clause. Uh, there was precedent uh, to hold that way. I had them dead to rights, and I lost nine to nothing in the Supreme Court, a so-called uh, a so-called conservative Supreme Court, uh, and they didn't even face up to even answering the questions of why they were doing this, other than that they had done it before. They had allowed the government to do these kind of things under the due process clause. Uh, which uh, does nothing except uh, guarantee you a hearing before they hang you. Um, so in, in that circumstance, uh, it was a very uh, demoralizing thing. Uh, I had two cases in the Supreme Court. I won one of them nine to nothing, and yet it was just as dishonest uh, and harmful to my client. Even though they supposedly let us win it, uh, it was a collective bargaining cop case. I won't get into it. But it was a very uh, demoralizing thing as a lawyer to finally get to the Supreme Court and to find what um, um, a resolute, dishonest reasoning they were willing to use in order to produce a result no matter uh, what the right and the wrong of it was and no matter what the Constitution or the federal law would say. Um, so much uh, political as we have seen uh, in spades, particularly in these last two years uh, with the election of uh, President Donald Trump uh, and the kinds of things that our government institutions do. Now, that's uh, I, I haven't even gotten out of my law <laughs> practice <laughs> well, that, of this thing, and I've taken quite a lot of time. Right, but uh, look, but I, talking about uh, the PBGC and – and uh, was that the ERISA Act, 1974? That's correct. That's yeah. what it was. And, and uh, you know, it did I'm a lot not... of harm yeah, when yeah. it could have done uh, some good. Uh, but uh, nevertheless, that was that was my background. And along about the, the year uh, 98, 2000, 2002, um, I was uh, largely getting out of the legal uh, practice and uh, was more interested in the uh, financial world, getting into that and trying to study to understand better how I might protect what uh, assets I had left uh, uh, earned during my legal career. And uh, I studied economics uh, on my own and particularly was interested in so-called supply-side economics, and I concluded on myself that that was really classical economic theory. Uh, it just had a new name, uh, but uh, I discovered Jude Winiski, who had named it supply-side economics, and Art Laffer. Uh, Jude Winiski had a small money management advisory economic forecasting firm called 
called economics. It really wasn't money management. I have to correct that. It was uh, advisory uh, economic uh, analysis uh, for market participants. And their clients were large asset management companies and things of that sort. And uh, I began uh, communicating with him. He wound up uh, hiring me to be his representative in the Western states. Uh, so basically a commission basis to try to get institutions to uh, uh, use his work, I think, and, and thought then that he was the best economic forecaster. His record was better than anyone else for the last 25 years or so, uh, 23 years of the 20th century and into the 21st. Uh, but his client base was relatively very small compared to the uh, larger firms that had the uh, capability to produce a lot of graphics and show and tell for uh, clients of the wealth management firms, uh, even though their records were not nearly as good as his in terms of understanding what the economy was doing and going to do. Um, and... Uh, in the process of representing him with other clients or prospects, um, I did some writing for him as well. Uh, he and I actually published a co-authored author article in the, one of the Washington newspapers. I think it was the Examiner. And uh, so it was an interesting time to learn more about economics. He was certainly, I, I think, a an important figure in that. He had written an important book called The Way the World Works. And he believed, that, uh, Jude Winiski believed, that he had explained the great crash because he had been able to tie together uh, the uh, occurrence, the specific time of the occurrence of uh, a vote on the Senate floor uh, regarding the Smoot-Hawley Tariff Act uh, each time there was a vote on the floor of the Senate in October of 1929, uh, in which the vote advanced the cause of the Smoot-Hawley Act, there was an immediate crash of major proportions. That was the great crash of 1929. And uh, he explained it that way in his book. And uh, that book actually uh, was named as one of the 100 most influential books of the 20th century, the way the world works. Uh, and so uh, he was, I knew he was uh, uh, disenchanted by the fact that uh, the major economic spokespeople, the academicians and so forth, uh, did not give his book any credit, uh, didn't really give it attention as explaining the, uh, the great crash. Um, they just sort of let it happen, uh, and he, he got the following that he got, and, but no accolades uh, from the uh, economic community. Um, well, along in th that period of time, uh, after a year or two with him, uh, I learned uh, pretty clearly that I could not write anything about what concerned me in the, uh, uh, in the investment community about uh, financial fraud. Uh, if I mentioned that or brought it up, uh, it was uh, quieted down in a hurry and certainly I wasn't uh, allowed to put anything in print. And uh, so it uh, 
it came to my knowledge, in effect, that uh, you just aren't permitted to say anything about financial fraud if you want to work in the financial industry. <laughs> and uh, <clears throat> I'm, I'm that, shocked. Of course, we we learned in spades uh, <laughs> later uh, after the uh, Madoff scandal, in which the uh, the very celebrated, I mean, a very accomplished uh, man in uh, uh, the Chartered Financial Analysts Society. He was the president of the Chartered Financial Analysts of Boston. He was a quant. And so uh, I'm sure you understand that terminology. Uh, he, uh, he was very well capable. The man who was trying to blow the whistle at the SEC for eight years uh, and got no response from them on Bernie Madoff, telling him that it was a fraud. Um, he was basically drummed out of the business uh, after he was learned to have, uh, uh, he was unemployable, became unemployable as soon as it became known that he was the one who tried to get Bernie Madoff busted by the SEC, unsuccessfully, until the scandal uh, broke and there was a 50 uh, well, whatever it was, uh, it was, a, a, I think, $50 billion or something of the sort. Uh, so in that circumstance, while I was still working for Jude, I started uh, doing a little research on my own because I didn't believe either uh, the, uh, the stories that the financial community spread that the Great Depression was just too complicated too complex, they couldn't put their finger on what caused it. But it just seemed to be one of those things that they, you know, by uh, the kind of commentary about it, it was the failings of human beings, uh, too greedy or too uh, positive or too uh, negative or uh, like uh, Roosevelt supposedly was saying is that the fear is what's causing this. So we just have to conquer our own fears and it'll be okay. Uh, so I started looking, I had been interested for some time, but I really did not want to write a book. Uh, I, I wrote a small one earlier and it's a lot of work and, uh, you know, very little reward for what you do, but, I stuck my nose into uh, looking at uh, a multi-volume work that was the, the published, edited personal diary of the man who was the uh, Secretary of State, I'm sorry, Secretary of the Treasury for FDR uh, practically the entire time, um, except for the first year when the, another man preceded him. Um, uh, this, uh, this man was, uh, uh, secretary of the treasury the entire time. And he kept a personal diary daily, uh, and, uh, a Yale professor of his history had, uh, edited his diary along with, uh, uh, the help of uh, Morgenthau, Henry Morgenthau Jr., and in that circumstance, uh, I thought maybe uh, he would reveal some things there that hadn't been talked about uh, or admitted to. And so I started looking um, uh, like a needle in a haystack, but I had had enough uh, 
exposure to Jude Winiski and uh, classical economics, I, I thought I knew something of what would be important if I found it. And so uh, in that circumstance, I started looking and it wasn't very long uh, before I found uh, something that I thought was important enough, I had to talk, I had to mention it to Jude. Uh, I did so on the phone and Jude uh, immediately says, you've got to write a book. I thought it was that important. And I'm sure that Jude, knowing how hard it is, didn't say that uh, lightly uh, because uh, it is a lot of work. And uh, it was certainly the last thing I wanted to hear because frankly, I was trying to make money. I was trying to make a living uh, and uh, hopefully trying to do it uh, in a way that uh, uh, would uh, assist my family and, and, and uh, uh, also be successful in uh, the work that I was trying to do. But um, unfortunately, it wasn't more than uh, four or five months later uh, that Jude Winiski uh, passed away of a heart attack at the age of uh, 69. And uh, uh, the firm that he had uh, created and was running at the time, Paul Economics, uh, essentially ended at the end of that year. And so uh, I was on my own. Um, he and I at the time, frankly, had uh, been planning I was already in the process of setting up a, a, a uh, um, an independent firm with him to manage uh, to manage money according to his views, uh, because nobody had fully done that yet. Although he had a number of money managers who used his his firm, but uh, of course, with his death, that uh, went by the wayside. And uh, in any event. That's a long-winded approach toward uh, my background and how I got into this. Uh, but uh, if you still have the time on this discussion, uh, I'll be happy, James, to uh, go ahead and start telling you what I found. Now, uh, I, I do have time, Wayne, and I appreciate the detail of your background. I mean, it, it educated as an engineer, an attorney, and then into the financial world, um, there's a reason that there are so many footnotes and documentation uh, in in your book. So much documentation in your book. That's no, I. So thank you for that. And yes, let's please continue. Um, All right. It sounds to me, if I'm just a listener, Wayne, it sounds like that was really a whole discovery process. You know, step by step, and kind of like a mosaic being put together piece by piece. Very interesting. I'm all well, I, I would say that uh, after that uh, first piece I and, and Jude's comment, I almost uh, was repulsed by that. I did. I don't do it. I'm not going to do any more research <laughs> because, uh, you know, this is just too big a thing. I, this is not the way I want to spend my time. I need to earn a living. <laughs> right. uh, but nevertheless, uh, particularly with Jude's uh, early death, I decided that um, – uh, well, if there's something there, I've got a responsibility to find it because at least I know, I think, what to look for and uh, where to look and so forth. And so I, I continued, uh, got back into uh, those same diaries of the Morgenthau diaries as edited. 
and I found a lot more. Uh, and uh, I found things that I knew were so important I couldn't uh, let it down. I had to uh, do my job. I had to take my responsibility and record it because if I didn't, it was clear nobody else had and nobody else would. Um, at least uh, it hasn't happened otherwise until then. And I haven't found anybody else, uh, particularly those in the academic community. It's like the same thing with uh, uh, that happened with Madoff. People in the academic community apparently are not permitted uh, to talk about these kinds of things. Um, even after my book came out, uh, de describing and defining in detail the role that FDR played in the Great Depression, uh, another academic book came out uh, praising him for being a traitor to his class. Oh, yeah. He's a demigod. He's a demigod. So I'm still at the point, even though my book uh, was published uh, in 2011, in mid-2011, uh, here we are in 2019, uh, it is still in the phase that uh, it is ignored oh, yeah. uh, rather than commented upon. Uh, so far as the academic community is concerned, uh, with very few exceptions, uh, the ac academic community has ignored it. Uh, they do not buy it. They do not use it in their classes. I've had uh, many comments from readers that it ought to be uh, in classes. I, I think it's readable, perhaps even at the high school level, uh, but uh, certainly at the college level. Uh, and I think uh, it treats economics, classical economics, treats economics in a much more understandable way by far than Keynesian economics does, uh, which is uh, entirely a deceptive mechanism trying to lead people away from understanding the economy and uh, what is being done by policymakers and what their uh, real motives are. So uh, I've explained that, for example, uh, there's a chapter in my book uh, devoted to Keynesian uh, analysis and, uh, and what it's all about. And uh, there's no question in my mind, uh, it is not only uh, flat out wrong in many of its basic uh, premises, uh, but it is uh, uh, purposely so from the standpoint that uh, it tries to make things very complex rather than simplifying them. Uh, I say, for example, that uh, uh, in wages, uh, they make wages so hard to understand as to how they're, what they're all about, that you wonder how anybody ever got a job from anyone. And so... Uh, uh, you put that in the overall concept, it really is a way to confuse people and to obfuscate so they really don't know what policymakers are doing or what the effects are. And yet, uh, because the big money is behind the Keynesianism, uh, the, what I call the kingmaker's cabal uh, that tries to run every country uh, is... Uh, uh, in the driver's seat so far as our universities are concerned, and uh, it's a great tragedy. Yes. Uh, I think uh, even in my lifetime, there's been the change in our universities from teaching classical economics, uh, which uh, guided the country well through the 19th century. That was when we had our greatest economic growth, 
so far as the middle class is concerned. And that is why, as I uh, relate in my book, uh, that uh, uh, as of 1900, uh, there was an express written in English plan to destroy the middle class worldwide, especially in the United States, but worldwide. That means the middle class, not just middle income earners, but the middle class includes everyone uh, capable of supporting themselves and their families with their uh, work and labor. Uh, even the lower middle class, they're supported at a low uh, uh, standard of living. But nevertheless, they support themselves. They're not slaves to the state. They're not slaves to the king. Uh, that's what the middle class is. And there was an express written plan in English to destroy that middle class entirely, to destroy all nations that are using so-called democracy so that uh, once and for all it would be made clear and predominant that other human beings other than the ruling class do not have a say in the way they live uh, or uh, their rights and obligations. They are a slave class to serve the rulers. Uh, that was the written plan published in 1901 that immediately got the author of it, a British author by the name of H.G. Wells, uh, an invitation immediately to the White House of Theodore Roosevelt as the honored guest uh, on the arm of uh, the woman who was the uh, creator of Planned Parenthood. Uh, her name escapes me right at this second, but uh, I'm sure everyone, uh, Sanger, Margaret Sanger. Yeah, Sanger, yeah. And uh, uh, Wells came out of that meeting as the honored guest at the U.S. White House of Theodore Roosevelt saying, calling Theodore Roosevelt the, uh, the demigod of whom I have dreamed. Uh, he was invited to the palaces of Europe. He was made an immediate academic all-star for the rest of his life. He uh, visited uh, for weeks at a time in the White House of Theodore Roosevelt and uh, Eleanor. And uh, uh, he visited Stalin uh, at the Kremlin, uh, celebrated in each of those places. And, and of course, he made each of those people uh, heroes uh, in terms of... Uh, uh, their leadership of the world in the direction that it was going. For example, he called uh, the kitchen cabinet, or uh, no, it's, that's not what it was called for Roosevelt. Uh, he had this uh, cadre of uh, people who advised him, and he called, H.G. Uh, Wells called those men uh, uh, the new... Uh, the new man that's capable of taking uh, absolute power. Uh, that's the uh, point about all of this, uh, uh, the written plan that had been put into effect to destroy the middle class, to destroy democracy. Uh, by the year 2000, to learn how to poison all of the people that they did not need, what they call the people of the abyss, 
this is a gruesome thing, and yet it is the reality of our history. And uh, uh, at this point, I think it would be important to uh, go specifically into the actions taken to cause the Great Depression. The crash of 1929, I learned after I researched it. I learned toward the, as I was finishing my book, after I had done the research of, uh, of what was done to cause it, uh, I learned about its pre-planning as well. Uh, I'll, I'll get to that later. Uh, but uh, the crash of 29 was pre-planned. Uh, but uh, it, it got it going, and Hoover did three things to help it get going. Uh, the first was there was widespread belief that the crash of 29 was uh, not only premeditated, but it was caused by a very widespread, heavy uh, financial fraud in the markets. That is, uh, doing what they call watering the stock, selling counterfeit shares that they didn't own. Uh, we call it naked short selling today. Uh, but uh, many shares counterfeited by selling them short when they don't exist, making the, the price crash. Uh, that's what caused those five big days uh, of the great crash. Uh, and it was done... What I added to the explanation that Jude Winiski had made, he had found that they occurred right at the time of those votes, and therefore he thought it was the significance of the votes that caused the crash that day. Well, my belief is that the votes had been agreed to as being the signal so that all the ones in the plan, all of the big traders on Wall Street, all the big banks, uh, and their cohorts and the ones who profited by knowing what they were doing, everybody would sell short at the time of those votes. That's what made the crash. And it was cunningly picked as the signal because it could be used as an excuse saying that, well, this was going to wreck world trade. And that's why supposedly the market was afraid of what it was going to do to world trade. Well, okay. But world trade was not that important to the U.S. market at that time. Uh, it would not have caused that uh, large a reaction, but it did cause it because they premeditated and they pre-planned to use that as the signal to do their naked shorting. And uh, therefore, uh, they, could, they could sell short knowing that it was going to be driven to the bottom then. Then they could recover again uh, at a very low price write it back up, and then do it all again, uh, which is exactly what they did. Uh, that, that was the situation, and yet Hoover did nothing about it. That was uh, his number one wrong, and the first wrong that he did. Uh, the second thing he did, uh, he signed Smoot-Hawley, uh, the tariff bill uh, that... Uh, Within 18 months of the date that he signed it, which was in June of uh, 1930, uh, 18 months later, at the end of 32, 
uh, unemployment was uh, 25% and higher. Uh, and uh, we had lost 70% of our export trade and 70% of our import trade. Uh, all of which he could have stopped with a word to the Senate that he didn't want it passed. Or he certainly could have vetoed it. It only passed by three votes. No chance it would have passed if he had vetoed it. And he should have known that it would be damaging. Um, there was no reason to shut other people out of uh, selling here uh, because uh, we had... Uh, it was a small part of our total economy. It just wasn't that important. And yet he caused this trade war in the entire world. Then with all of that, with unemployment at the end of 1931 at something like 30% or more, he's going to be running for office in 32 again. That That's his fourth year in office as president. And Hoover has the bright idea that he's going to be affirmative and have a giant tax increase, income taxes. <laughs> Quadruples the lowest rate uh, from 1% to 4% and expands it a lot to cover a lot more incomes, people who hadn't even had to pay income tax before. And the, the top rate of 25%, uh, he uh, tripled to 75% or thereabouts. Uh, so, um, and that was to be passed and was passed by the Democrats uh, in 1932. And of course, Hoover was blown out of office and uh, would have been ridden out of town on a rail if, uh, if people had the time to do it. Uh, so uh, he deserved to be out of office for those three things. Uh, Roosevelt, Franklin Roosevelt, was elected in order to undo those three things. And he sort of indicated in his campaign that's what he'd be doing. But of course, once he got elected, he did exactly the opposite. Uh, uh, he didn't repeal the income taxes. Uh, in fact, every year he was in office, during his four elected terms until his death, he raised taxes and or added new taxes every year, except 1939. And I'll tell you later why he didn't do it then. It was because Congress would not do it because the Democrats then controlling the House had lost 83 seats in the 38 elections. Uh, so that explains the one year. And he was insisting that entire year that they raised taxes and, and uh, even the Democratic House would not pass a bill to do it. So, uh, well, let me let me uh, ask for clarity here. In in thirty two, when Hoover uh, increased the taxes, he did. I mean, at that time, the the federal income tax deadline, the due dates were different. But somewhere along in there, wasn't the weren't the taxes made retroactive? Well, yes, yeah, very very good point you made. Uh, that was in the uh, the tax bill of 1932. It was enacted that year toward the end of the year, and it was made effective January one of 32. And so uh, there was no withholding tax, of course, at that time, and so uh, 
the tax was all made due and payable on March 15th, on or before March 15th of 1933. Now that puts us not March 15th, 1933. Yeah. I mean, these, these dates uh, are significant and, and, and let me also say that Hoover has a complete background. You know, we you began talking in, in 1901 with H.G. Wells, um, and now we're going to the you know the the great crash of 29. And there's a lot of uh, history that happened between 1900 and 1929. And my mentor, R. Nelson Nash, I learned from him that you cannot separate economics from history. Behind every historical great historical event. There's some economics going on behind there. Um, and I digress a little, but so here we are, 1932. Taxes are raised dramatically, and then they're retroactive to March 15th of 1933. Now, let's just share with us a little bit of what happens in 1933 in Roosevelt. And this is just a continuation of the construct that, that was calculated, set in motion, and and it continues today, in my opinion. But uh, uh, March fifteenth, of course, nineteen thirty-two, turned out to be a very propitious time, because just before that, uh, we had a so-called run on the banks. Now, why would people be running to the banks to get their money out? Uh, it would be to pay taxes, and uh, so, in large part, that so-called run on the banks. Which, uh, what did it give Roosevelt the invitation to do? Shut down the banks. And uh, why would he want to do that? Well, the big banks of, uh, of Wall Street have always hated the small banks. Uh, they want to wipe as many of them out as possible. Uh, and uh, that accomplished a good deal of that uh, objective at that time. They could shut down uh, all the banks, uh, which they were shut down, all of them. And they could uh, simply refuse to allow the ones they didn't want to operate. Uh, they would just keep them closed. Um, I have not gone into trying to uh, document those individually, but uh, that was the circumstance. It has been the circumstance ever since. The smaller banks still are the, uh, the adversaries, the enemies, uh, the competition of the big banks of Wall Street. And the big banks of Wall Street still, of course, are the dominating financial force in the country, no doubt about it. And they certainly are, so far as the Federal Reserve is concerned. Uh, they, they own and control the Federal Reserve with, with minor uh, influence by the smaller banks. Uh, but uh, uh, yes, that is exactly uh, the kind of thing that uh, was very important uh, uh, in uh, the time of the Great Depression and uh, uh, the things that have done that, that got Roosevelt started in terms of what he was able to do for the big banks and knocking out their competition, uh, also in terms of uh, hurting the middle class. Uh, but let me uh, go ahead with uh, some of the additional things sure, sure. Uh, uh, that he uh, did as well. On the uh, matter of... Uh, uh, tariffs, he appointed a Secretary of State, Cordell Hull, uh, who was uh, very well known as being someone who supported strongly uh, international trade. And uh, Cordell Hull was therefore one who wanted to roll back the tariffs. So he's got him as Secretary of State. Cordell Hull immediately organizes an international conference in London 
for all nations, trading nations to come so that uh, uh, there could be an agreement to roll back tariffs across the board and uh, get international trade going again. Uh, so uh, he gets that going uh, in uh, July of 1933, only three months after they've taken office. And uh, all the nations there, he's, he's got a terrible uh, group of people sent with him by Roosevelt, uh, basically scalawags uh, uh, that uh, were living it up in Paris uh, when, or London while they were there. Uh, but uh, nevertheless, he has the, the meeting ready to sign an agreement rolling back the tariff rates. And uh, on the day they're about to do it, Roosevelt makes a radio speech from Washington uh, declaring that he will not enter any agreement that uh, 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 provides that he will not uh, devalue the U.S. dollar. Uh, well, devaluing the dollar is uh, like the reverse side of the same coin as the tariff is. It changes the terms of trade very significantly, and therefore... When Roosevelt uh, wouldn't permit anything in the agreement relating to uh, the value of the currency, uh, that means that they can't sign an agreement. Well, everybody uh, got as mad as hornets in London uh, at the international conference. Everyone went home mad, and uh, there was no agreement. In other words, the, the newspapers, even at the time, said that, that Roosevelt had torpedoed uh, the attempt to lower tariff rates. Uh, which, of course, is exactly what he did. And so uh, uh, I've told you what he did on taxes. I've told you what he did on tariffs. Uh, the, uh, the next thing is uh, fraud on the markets. Well, fraud on the markets had continued all the way through the Hoover term. And so uh, Roosevelt was making a, uh, an indication that he was going to do something to, to stop the fraud. And so uh, in 1933, they passed the 1930 uh, Securities Act, uh, 1933 Securities Act, and uh, basically made it a crime to engage in fraud uh, in the trading of uh, uh, corporate shares. Problem was they didn't uh, define what the penalty was and they defined, didn't define what fraud was. So it was a, a useless thing. So the next year, 34, they passed the 1934 Securities Exchange Act and uh, set up the SEC Commission uh, to so-called regulate fraud and to, to determine what fraud was. And they designed it specifically as, an, as a commission with representatives of the financial community to make sure that the big guys never get prosecuted for fraud. What? I'm shocked. I'm shocked. <laughs> uh, so uh, you can't do any worse than what FDR did in correcting the three big wrongs that Hoover did. Uh, but that's not where Roosevelt stopped. Uh, that's just where he started. Uh, and uh, uh, I, I told you that he's already that he's uh, he raised taxes every year. Uh, but let me run, run through the uh, other things. Uh, one of the things that he started doing immediately upon taking office, this was even when Morgenthau 
was before he became Secretary of the Treasury. Uh, Morgenthau was head of, I think, the, what they call the Reconstruction Finance Corporation. It was uh, more or less a slush fund for uh, spending money in ways that uh, uh, Roosevelt thought was beneficial, uh, so-called, to the, to the economy. And one of the things they started doing immediately was buying gold on the open market on foreign exchange. Um, and so they were taking money that had been raised as tax money and spending it on gold uh, to uh, en enhance the amount of gold that uh, the U.S. Treasury had in its vaults. Now, why would they do that when people are starving to death? Uh, it is the kind of thing that takes money out of the economy and puts it in storage. Exactly the kind of thing that the comic books used to say Scrooge McDuck would do and was such a terrible thing for ordinary people because it meant no money in the economy. Well, Roosevelt began doing that immediately in 1933 uh, even at a time when he was had already ordered in March of 33 that uh, Americans must turn in their gold coins. Anyone with gold coins had to turn them in for what they paid for them, $20.67. Take them to the bank. You'll get your $20.67 in cash. Uh, and that uh, that was a criminal law requiring criminal punishment if you were caught to be violating it. And uh, uh, that began immediately. By the end of the year, they pretty much had all the gold that people had uh, invested in. You remember when Smoot-Hawley passed, uh, it caused a lot of factories to be shut down because they couldn't export any longer. Uh, a lot of businesses failed, the ones who did import business as well. And uh, when people liquidated their business, sold for cents on the dollar, but whatever money they had left, they couldn't invest again because there was, there was no business for anybody. So they had bought gold to try to protect the value of their purchasing power because there, was, there were rumors that uh, Roosevelt was going to devalue the dollar. And so they were protecting themselves against devaluation. Well, he takes all the gold. And then as soon as he's got it for $20.67 an ounce, he gets it in the U.S. Treasury, and then he devalues the dollar to $35 an ounce of gold, and he takes all of the so-called profits uh, that are already in the Treasury, and he takes that and shifts it over to a secret organization called the Exchange Stabilization Fund, you know, a title that makes it appear that they're going to hunt the stock market not have fraud, uh, clearly that was not going to be the case with the SEC set up as a mechanism to uh, facilitate fraud. Uh, and uh, uh, so we have um, uh, that circumstance that we have a secret organization, the Exchange Stabilization Fund, that does whatever it wants still to this day, and we have no report from them as to what they do. Uh, and his funds are said to be much, much larger than what it initially got.
The call with Wayne Jett and I went a little bit long, so we decided to split it in half, make two parts out of it, so be sure and watch for the second part. We may even have him return in the future to continue our conversation. So thanks for listening. Have a great day. Thank you for joining us on the Banking with Life podcast. If you're watching on YouTube, make sure to like and subscribe and click on that little notification bell. Otherwise, join us on Apple Podcasts and Stitcher for weekly content.